0: Father, our hearts are full. We are so appreciative. I thank you for this beautiful young couple. They are your gift to our church at this time. And Lord, may we be a gift in return to them. May we be a blessing and a source of encouragement. May they grow in their ministries and in their influence. I pray today that you're going to open all our hearts. I've been asking this morning that you would work supernaturally. You would work profoundly. It wouldn't just be my words. It would be your voice speaking into our very depths of our being. I pray today that this would be a defining moment. Lives would be changed. Lord, that you would transform us. Lord, as I shared last week on the Mount of Transfiguration, as you were praying, Jesus, you were changed. Lord, as we are now in your presence, may we be changed. May decisions be rendered today that will affect all of eternity. I pray, Father, that our lives would be better because of being here today. I pray, Father, that our response to you would be wholehearted and open, that we would surrender and commit ourselves to you in a way maybe we've never done before. Someone shared with me earlier from the last service that they surrendered in a way they never have before. I believe you're going to do that today. And I thank you for that, Father. I pray, give us uh, attentive hearts, hearing ears, and responsive, and may we respond and apply what we're hearing into our lives and we thank you for that in Jesus name and God's people said amen Amen. last night I had the privilege of officiating at my son-in-law Curtis's sister's wedding and uh, it was a beautiful time and it was great and you know I love I love his sister she says pastor it's just a tiny wedding they had 260 to 300 guests (laughs) you know it was kinda cute she didn't think we needed a rehearsal because she thought It was going to be real simple. And when she put in everything she wanted, it was a very complex wedding. But I have to say, I was deeply impressed because she had all of her nieces and nephews involved and they just behaved immaculately. I was just like, wow, I'm really impressed with these kids. So they did a great job. But on my way home from the wedding, and it was pretty late last night, I was listening to a talk show host who raised an interesting question about the behavior of athletes. And he asked, and people were tweeting in their responses, uh, you know, Is it important how a person behaves away from their field of endeavor? In other words, does it really matter how bad people behave as long as they perform on the athletic field? And there was all kinds of response, and the person that was on the talk show, and he was relating, and he said, you know, he was shocked by the response, because the majority of them thought, you know what, what people do in their private life and what they do in their public life, it doesn't really matter. And... And this guy was not a believer and he was really stunned by that and finally one person tweeted and he says you know all of you guys that are tweeting these answers and it just says to me most of you don't have children because the moment you have children you're concerned about the kind of influence that they're being exposed to and you want the people that they're looking up to to be exceptional role models and unfortunately many people today are not exceptional role models and then he went on to talk quite at length and I was really surprised and actually warmed in my heart to hear a non-believer stick up for people like Christians who he thought we were being persecuted unjustly. And I, I was, you know, this was a really interesting conversation that was going on. I was following it. But basically, the essence of the whole, L, the, the discussion on the radio was about character. And I am convinced that character is a key to mental and emotional stability. Very important. The kind of decisions we make are determined by the kind of people that we are or are we, we're becoming. Do you believe that? You know, who you are determines what you do. It determines the kind of thinking, the kind of behavior, the kind of, you know, what you're gonna do. And as a matter of fact, James gives us a very insightful thing in a letter. He said, a wise person is one who trusts in God And because of that trust in God, you become a stable person and are able to do the right thing under the greatest possible test and pressure. As a matter of fact, James tells us that trials and and difficulties and, and pressures are actually not a bad thing. They're actually a revelation of the true condition of your soul. This is how he says it in James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. In other words, if we ask God, and by the way, this is God's will that we're wise, and wisdom is not just that we're smart. No, wisdom is not just the ability to do the right thing. Wisdom is actually how we relate to people, wisdom is how we relate to God you know and i believe that that's the most important thing in life you know mel and i were chatting at the wedding and he said you know you can you can actually his he said when my youngest brother who was about 8 years younger than me and probably just 12 or 13 said it doesn't matter how much education you got or have it's what you do with it that really matters and that's the truth So we need to learn some things. And so here we're asking God for wisdom. And he goes on to say, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. So now he's talking about an element of instability. And he goes on to say that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. So now he's talking to us about the nature of prayer, and one of the things that we need to do when we're praying is have confidence that God is gonna do what we ask, but so therefore we must ask things that we know are in accordance with his will. That is so critical. But then it goes on, he's a double-minded man, This is the part that really is a scary part. He's a double-minded man. In other words, he doesn't know he knows. He doesn't know he hopes. He's unstable in all he does. Indecisive, conflicted, divided, wanting what God wants, but also desiring what the world has to offer. It leaves a person in a very fragile state. You know, Jesus said you can't serve God in money. It's not because, you know, it's possible. He says it's impossible to do it. Because when you try to do two things, you become divided, conflicted, unstable, and you're unable to accomplish what you're pursuing. You have to have a focus. The problem is an issue of integrity or of character. To be a person of integrity means that we are integrated. That's where we get the word integrity from. Integrated means that we're whole. We're we're single-minded. We're of one mind. We're not all over the map. We're not wishy-washy. You know, We've decided. We've made a decision. So we learn from James that people who lack godly character are going to live a compromising life. The result will not only be instability in their own lives, but... Those who depend on unstable people, unstable people will constantly experience pain, disappointment, and ultimately the destruction of that relationship. Now, in our text today, we're going to discover a contrast between Jesus and Herod. We're going to see the difference between a godly character that brings life versus the compromised life and the instability and destruction that comes from that kind of a life. So I'm basically pointing out that there's only two ways to live. We're either, you know, going for God or we're not going for God. But you know sometimes we dance. We think we can be on the fence. Sometimes, you know, as Christians we try to nibble a little bit with sin. We're playing on the fringes. We're hoping, we know it's wrong, but we're not really doing it, but we're kind of there. You know, we're we're you know, if we If we could get away with it, we would. But we know that maybe there's a penalty to it, so we don't. You know, it's that kind of a mindset that needs to be transformed. Here in the Gospel of Mark, we see a contrast between Jesus and Herod. And you go, is that really fair? How many say, you know, you're you're really, (laughs) I mean, who's gonna measure up to Jesus, right? But let me point out to all of us here, we need to remember as human beings that we were created in the image of God. In other words, God made us to be like himself. We were designed to be godly. Do you realize that every, every person on the human planet was designed in the image of God? We were des- made to be like God. We were made to be Christ-like. We were designed by God. That's an amazing thought. Isn't that a stunning thought? Could you imagine if every person on this planet was like Jesus? Jesus. Now yeah, somebody just said, wow. I go, wow, wow. I mean, that is amazing thought. You go, that's what heaven's going to be like. Everyone there is going to be like Jesus. You know, we're going to have, it's going to be an amazing place. That's, that's why we can look forward to it. That's why we know there's not going to be tears. That's why we know people are, are not going to be, you know, doing things to, you know, be destructive and, and just self-centered and promoting themselves. With that, that whole attitude will be gone. The whole, the whole kingdom of God will be so embedded in our thinking that we will know that it's not about us. And we will be reminded continuously and the battle that's within our soul that the sin nature, this propensity to do the wrong thing will be eradicated from our lives. So we will be totally capable of living a sinless life. We will be like Jesus. And so I think it's imperative that we do make a contrast between ourselves and Jesus, or in this case, between Herod and Jesus. I think it's a fair model. These two individuals, you know, Mark brings it out, he brings two incidences and puts them back to back. That's why I'm making this contrast. It kind of dawned on me as I was studying the text, I go, wow, look at this. And I could see all these contrasts between the two stories that were playing out. These two incidents really is a a study of leadership, but it's also a study of contrast. Here in our text, Jesus and Herod are providing a banquet, a food. Two very different outcomes come about. One leads to the death of a godly prophet, the other to a miracle feeding 5,000 men. One leader takes the life of a good man, the other ultimately gives his life on behalf of those he's leading. Both experience the pressure of the crowd and one is able to make the right decision and the other succumbs to the pressures and makes a terrible, evil decision. Jesus invites the multitude while Herod restricts his guest list to the important or prominent people that that he's patronizing. One banquet is held in a palace and the other is on a deserted hillside. Jesus' banquet is so powerful that it is remembered and recorded in all four Gospels. While Jesus' miracle of... Uh, uh, of feeding the 5,000 is actually one of the highlights to his whole ministry. Herod's banquet is infamous because of the injustice that he perpetrates. The banquet where Herod ruled as king was the ultimate action of self-serving while the other banquet is an amazing expression of Jesus' compassion and the foreshadowing of his self-giving for other people. So we find a contrast between two and how they care and lead others. You know, we need to learn the amazing difference beque- between the kind of person God designed us to be and what happens when we allow that design to be corrupted by sin. And so I want to just paint two pictures. And there's really only two pictures, there's really only two choices. You know, we love to think in our culture today we have all these choices, we don't, it's a myth. We either do God's will or we don't. It's real simple. But we like to pretend, you know, there's all these shades and in-betweens and we like to think we have all these choices. No, we have one choice. We either do what God wants or we do what we think we want to do. And it has two different outcomes. And I want to look at those outcomes today. I want to look at these lifestyles. So I'm going to contrast two lifestyles or two, two type of people. And you and I fit into one camp or the other. We have to make a decision today which camp are we in, and which camp do we wanna be in? And the first one is simply a life corrupted by a sinful nature. What happens when sin distorts us? What happens when we're given responsibility over others and we're not leading others the way God intends? What happens when our lives become compromised? So many people dismiss the notion that what I do, uh, do does not really matter in the lives of others, but all leadership is is actually influence. How are we influencing the people around us? How many people here are your parents? You're a parent. You're, you're a leader. You're influencing. People are watching you. Little lives are watching. Little eyes are on you. All the time. You can tell them to do the right thing, but if you're doing the wrong thing, they're watching you do the wrong thing. What do you think speaks louder, actions or words? Actions, actions thank you. It's true. What kind of an example are we to our siblings? What kind of an example are we to our friends? What kind of an example are we... With those we work around, or those we work for, or those we lead over organizations, or of those that teach in a classroom setting. What kind of an example are we setting? Who are we? And what are we doing? That's the critical issues that I'm raising today. And when we live a compromised life, where character is compromised, then we can anticipate abusive and unhealthy relationships. And how many go? There's a lot of those today. Too many. When the Apostle Paul was charging a young leader, Timothy by name, in his leadership re- responsibilities, he says something very interesting. He said, Watch your life. Notice he didn't just say, you know, watch what you do. He says, I mean, say, but watch what you do. Watch your life and doctrine. That's what you teach closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's very important what we do, not only for ourselves, but for those that are listening, those that are watching, those that were influencing, those that were inspiring, you know. When we live a compromised life, where character is compromised, we're going to see havoc. Here in our text, we discover that Jesus had sent out his disciples. They had arrived back to give a report. Remember, I preached this a couple of weeks ago. Sent his team out. Short-term missions. Mark chapter 6, verse 30, we pick up. You know, I'm, I'm going to jump back to verse 14 and tell the story, but verse 30, there's kind of a little segue. It's kind of a parenthetical thought. We, we get the story and then we, we come back. But here's the apostles. They're gathering around Jesus and they're reporting to him all that they had done and taught. And between sending them out and the report, we have not only a good report, but Mark is about to warn us and his readers that there are inherent dangers in proclaiming God's message. Remember he sent them out to proclaim the message? But how many know that when you are a faithful, godly, and courageous witness, you can actually give your life for your convictions? John the Baptist does do that very thing. As a matter of fact, Mark spends more time on this, you know, describing John's end than any of the other gospel writers. It's actually a foreshadowing of what's about to happen to Jesus. There's going to be an interesting development. And... We all know this, that oftentimes when somebody communicates something that people don't want to hear, people get upset with the messenger. Isn't that true? Don't we have kind of a cultural expression, say, don't shoot the messenger? And what we mean by that is what? You don't like the news, but don't attack me for it, right? But, and yet, we know that that's what people do. People have a tendency, to, when they don't like what they're hearing, to attack the person who's communicating the message to them and that's one of the reasons why I think the church gets silent because we have an anticipation that some people may not want to hear what we have to say and so we don't say anything and therefore you know what we just allow people to continue to go in their way to their own self-destruction and then I have to ask myself the question how loving am I really at that moment it's, more, it's been more about me than it's been about them the reason why I'm quiet is not for their sake it's for my sake isn't that true? Because if I said something, I'm risking things. I'm risking relationship. I'm risking being misunderstood. I'm risking being criticized. I'm risking being alienated. I'm risking being cut off. I'm taking all kinds of risks. And yet, when I look at the life of John the Baptist, he took amazing risks because he was God's servant, and he did not live a compromised life, and therefore he was willing to communicate what God told him to say, and he did it with boldness. And Jesus said, there's been no one greater than John in the entire element of prophets. He was, he was a man that did exactly what God wanted him to do. Here in Mark chapter six, verse 14, it says, when King Herod heard about this, heard about what? Well, the news about Jesus. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that, that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. How many know John the Baptist never did a miracle? He never did one. Why would they say that Jesus then was John the Baptist resurrected? You know why they said that? They said, look, yeah, John the Baptist was a godly man, he was preaching God's message, but now that he's been killed and back to life, that's why we're seeing this supernatural stuff because this is a supernatural uh, person now, okay? So that's how some of them were relating to who Jesus is. Others have said he's Elijah. Still others claim he's a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he weighs in. On on the discussion and he says John the man I beheaded was raised from the dead see Herod probably is dealing with what a guilty conscience he knew he had killed an innocent man he knew he had killed one of God's spokesperson and he was having a hard time living with himself for what he had done so he believed as well as some of them that Jesus was actually John the Baptist come back to life James Brooks points out, Herod, like Pilate, did not want to execute his prisoner, but caved in to the pressures from others. We're going to see the story here in a minute. He caved in, just like Herod caved in. I'm sorry, like Pilate caved in when it came to, you know, Jesus. Isn't it interesting that two leaders who were actually represented justice and authority caved in under public pressure and did the wrong thing? Which goes to show you that democracy in its purest form is not always correct. The majority are not always right. I know now I'm totally politically incorrect. (laughs) But that's okay with me because I want to be biblically correct. The majority many times are absolutely wrong. And what they are saying and doing is not in the best interest of the society or of themselves or of other people and we're seeing more and more of that as time goes along. So why? Why? why is uh, Mark bringing this to our attention because it's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Jesus both John and Jesus pose a threat to the paranoid nature of Herod you know if you go to Israel there's a kind of a neat map you go to the museum it used to be at a hotel but they moved it to a museum now there's a 125th sketch you know kind of three dimensional building of the city of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus it's really neat And you get to walk and look at it. And Herod's palace has two bedrooms. On the north side and the south side. And he kept moving between bedrooms. Why? He was so afraid someone would attack his palace and kill him. He wanted to make sure that, you know, if that happened, maybe they'd miss him because they'd go to the wrong room. He actually had more than one palace so he could move from palace to palace. This guy was paranoid. He even killed some of the members of his own family because he was afraid that he would lose his position of authority. So now we have Herod here, it says, in verse um, 17. Sorry. Uh, Go this way. According to Mark, the growing reputation of Jesus was an uneasy reminder to Herod that he had not silenced John's message by severing his head. So, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, writes about this incident. It's very fascinating. It gives a political twist to the reason why Herod killed John the Baptist. That tells you how, how influential John the Baptist and Jesus were. This is mentioned by this Jewish historian. He said this, When others, too, joined the crowds about him because they were aroused to the highest degree by his sermons... Herod became alarmed. Eloquence that had so great an effect on mankind might lead to some form of sedition. In other words, he was concerned that Herod was gaining so much, I mean, John was gaining so much popularity that he might be in trouble. And so it looked as if they would be guided by John in everything that they did. And remember when John was preaching, they said, well, what should we do, John? He said, well, do this. What should we do about that? He said, do this. So people were listening to what John was saying. And this was troubling Herod. Herod decided therefore that it would be much better to strike first and be rid of him before his work led to an uprising than to wait for an upheaval get involved in a difficult situation and see his mistake so Josephus the Jewish historian says the reason why Herod was killed was because he was a political threat now I think there's probably truth in both the stories I think you know Herod probably had that concern But now we get a real insight to why he was killed. I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark explains to us another side of the story. Here's the other side of the story. The apostles, um, it says when when Herod heard that that Jesus, sorry, that John was... um, Basically, he was focused on more the spiritual side or the moral side of it. You know, conviction of sin either leads to repentance or recrimination. In other words, we'll either respond in a positive way and repent, or we'll 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 start attacking. And we either respond in that way and turn from our sin, or we resist correction by attacking the messenger. That's exactly what Herod did. So Herod's wife, his new wife, Herodias, was angry, and she, like Jezebel of all was now about to manipulate her husband and making a decision that he would later regret. Verse 17, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. In other words, he had taken his brother's wife, you know in a sense, lured her from that relationship over to him, and John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So he's contending with him on a moral level. He's breaking the law of God. So Herodias, the wife, nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John. How many know that people are always afraid of righteous people? People are always afraid of the people who are standing for the right thing. So there's a little cowardice inside of Herod here, and it says he feared John and protected him from whom? His wife, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man, and when Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed, yet he liked to listen to him. Now, I, I think he was perplexed because you know, he, was, he was unilluminated. He wasn't getting the message. He was you know, kind of, he, he liked it, but he didn't like it. He was a bit puzzled by it. He was intrigued by it. And John was just a straight communicator. And so he was you know, kind of nibbling and playing with the things of God. And what's gonna happen is that there's gonna come a moment where that, that opportunity for him to respond is gonna disappear. As a matter of fact, there's going to be an opportunity for him to do the right thing, and he won't be able to. And it happens very quickly. It says, when, you know, I just wrote, when we know what the right thing to do is and we don't do it, we eventually are challenged to choose. you know that happens? The only problem with a compromised life is that when that happens, we tend to make the wrong choice and turn away from what is Right. It just took the right situation to expose the true condition of Herod's heart because he was more concerned about what others thought than he was about doing the right thing. Tests and pressures reveal who we really are. That's where we are at that moment. That doesn't mean we'll always be there. That doesn't mean we can't get better. It doesn't mean we can't repent. It doesn't mean God can't change us. It doesn't mean we can't you know, get stronger. But at that moment, the test is, is kind of a snapshot. Every test that comes your way is a snapshot of where you are at that moment. And sometimes we pass and other times we fail. How many know, how many know what I'm talking about? And some of you in this room can say, yeah, I've passed some tests and i failed some tests. But it is, it, it, it's very indicative of where we're at. And then the Bible says, finally the opportune time came. Another translation says the perfect moment came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the girl said, uh, "Sorry." The king said to the girl, "Ask me for anything you want; I'll give it to you." And he promised her with an oath, "Whatever you ask, I will give it up to half my kingdom." Kind of little, you know, back to the days when. The Persian king said to Esther, you know, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Or, you know, remember Daniel, I'll give you a third of my kingdom. You know, these kind of great promises. But how many know rash promises always lead to regret? And so he made this, you know, it was a party. Party atmosphere, everybody's happy. We make these statements. The only problem was, Herod had all of these guests listening to this promise. So she goes out and says to her mother, what should I ask for? Herodias goes, I got it. I know exactly what I want. She says, I want the head of John the Baptist. The girl runs back into the king with the request, I want you to give to me right now. Notice now, she's now reframing it, right? I don't want this to be a delay. Right now, the head of John the Baptist, and she adds, on a platter, this is pretty gruesome. This is not a horror movie, folks. This is actually reality. The tragedy was that this young girl, probably in her early teens. The word for girl there is the same word that was used earlier in Mark's Gospel when remember Jesus came along and healed a little girl about 12 years old. That's the same word used here. So she's probably 12 to 14 years old. But she had grown up in such a wicked environment that she even added to the request she had been so deeply influenced by Herodias, her mother, that she was now corrupted, just like her mother was. What we need to understand, when we live a compromised life, we live a corrupted life, we're influencing people the wrong way. She was influenced by her mother's ways. matter of fact, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15:33 says, "Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good characters." It just corrupts good character. And we've all seen it. You know, I I jokingly say you can always tell with who people are hanging with because it affects their behavior. When you're a parent, you'll notice this with children, but you can even see it with people. You don't even have to look at it with kids. You know, if you want to be a wise person, hang with wise people. You want to be a godly person, hang with godly people. Because you know what? You will be influenced by the people that you're hanging with. There's There's no doubt about it. I'm not saying you don't have non-believing friends. I have associations and connections with non-believers, but I'll tell you one thing. They're not my best friend. The people that are my best friends are godly people, because I want to be a godly person. The king was greatly distressed, it says in verse 26, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. Why? Because his whole structure of relationship with these military commanders and these people that he, he was their patron was based on his word. And if he went back on his word, he was actually undermining his relationship with all his guests. And he knew that. And so now he had to make a very tough decision. He had to decide, is he gonna actually keep his word to, you know, to this girl, what he had said? But on the other side, if he kills John the Baptist, he knows he's killing an innocent person. And so it's an issue of justice or expediency. And because he's living a compromised life, which do you think is easier, justice or expediency? Is it easier to do what's going to benefit him or what's going to actually be detrimental to him? And so he makes the decision. And my, my, my premise here today is simply this, that when you and I live a compromised life, what's really happening in our lives is that we're making decisions what we think is in the best interest of ourselves, even at the expense of other people. And that's where the majority of people are living today. When push gets to shove, people are making decisions, what what they think is best for themselves, even though it may be at the expense of other people. Herod made that decision. Herod had to live with that decision, and so when we pick up the story at the very beginning, when they said, who is Jesus, he is so full of guilt and remorse in his mind that he thinks, you know what, this has got to be John the Baptist, come back to get me. You know, and this, by the way, is the Herod that actually has Jesus killed. You guys don't know that, but I am just keep filling it in. A little bit more as the story goes on. You know, James Edwards says, Herod, you know, Herod uh, well, sorry, opportunities to do good or evil are always around us. So while Herod was dallying with sin, the opportunity or moment came for sin to overcome Herod. Edwards says it this way, James Edwards. Antipas, or Herod Antipas, hoped to achieve an expedient end by doing a limited injustice what is he talking arresting this man for no reason really but like anyone who lives by such a philosophy he can choose to do a limited act of injustice but he cannot determine the greater injustice to which it will lead you go well what does that mean pastor I just summarize it this way in other words once we start down the wrong path we make the wrong decision we cannot control the outcome you hear what I'm saying once we make the decision, we can't control the result. You and I can control the decisions, but we can't control the outcomes. I many of that's true. It's like taking a snowball and you start rolling down a hill. It just picks up steam. And how many people have you heard say these statements? Like, uh, I, I didn't mean for that to happen. Anybody ever heard that statement? How many have heard, I didn't mean for that to happen? Have you heard that? That's the point I'm making. Once you make the decision, you can't control those outcomes. How, um, the reality is that sin always brings destruction. In this, as in other events of his life, Antipas's weakness of character and vacillating actions are exploited by his wife. In contrast to, to Antipas, who is short-sighted and impetuous, Herodias, his wife, nurses her antipy, her, her hatred, against John with shrewd and calculating patience entirely willing to sacrifice even the honor of her daughter to achieve her design that's what evil people do I'll use people to get my way the tragedy of a compromised life is seen in the death of John the Baptist a godly man the dishonor of Herodias' daughter and finally and you don't know this but and it doesn't bring it out in the scriptures but history brings it out the exile and banishment of Herod and Herodias by Caligula, another Roman emperor. Because they, they want to, they you know, anytime you start doing wrong things, guess what your pattern of life is? You do more wrong things. And they eventually get banished. They eventually lose their position. Let me just move on to the second contrast. And it's simply this. Is the life surrendered to God's will? I'm going to take another, I, I was going to stop at this, but I'm, look at the next feature. Jesus is now feeding 5,000 people. Totally different picture. Jesus, whom the writer of the Hebrews states, came to do his father's will. As a matter of fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. There's only two things. We're either doing God's will or we're not doing God's will. Jesus said, I've come to do the will of God. If we're going to be like Jesus, what have we come to do? The will of God. God. As a matter of fact, when we look at the Lord's prayer, remember when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he prayed, thy kingdom come. What's the next line? Thy Thy will be done. That's the way we should be praying. We should be saying, God, it's not what I want. As a matter of fact, that's the temptation in the garden, that I'm going to decide what's right or wrong. Or do I let God decide what's right or wrong? Is it what I want or is it what God wants? It's a decision that every one of us must make. And the surrendered life says, I'm deferring this decision and allowing God to determine what is right and wrong in my life. Your will be done. Not what I want. Your will be done. It says here, now, the mission trip. Short-term mission trips up. They're all giving a report to Jesus. Verse 31, Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said, They'd Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat and... They went to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. If you've been to Israel, the Sea of Galilee is not that big of a lake. You can actually look across the lake. They could actually see where the boat was going. So they started running around the lake to beat Jesus. And maybe maybe the waves, the wind, whatever, was hindering the boat. They actually arrived to the location before Jesus got there. And when he got there, when he landed, he saw a large crowd. And the Bible said he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began teaching them many things. Now how many would think, you know, that's a weird response, you know, to have compassion. I have I've, I've already suggested the difference. Pitying somebody is that you have an emotional angst, you know, you, you have you know, a sense of emotion toward the situation. Compassion is you do something about it. Jesus saw them as helpless and harassed. That's what Matthew says. Helpless and harassed. Helpless and harassed in what way? These people were oppressed. These people were frustrated about their lives. These people was like living under Nazi Germany. They, they, these people wanted freedom. These people wanted to, you know, develop a, a movement. And a movement was born in Galilee. It was called the Zealots. And one of Jesus's actually disciples left that movement to join Jesus and become a follower of Christ. But the zealot movement was so strong that within another 30 years, that they would fight Rome tooth and nail, and if they hadn't been fighting with each other, they would have defeated the Roman armies. That's a shocking statement, but it's the truth. Here's what we need to know. So they're there, and Jesus starts teaching them, because he knows that these guys are on the wrong frequency. He knows that there's the sentiment inside the heart of these people. As a matter of fact, New Testament scholar James Edwards says something very profound, and this is gonna probably shatter one of your images in the New Testament. He says, although this image elicits picture of Jesus helping weak and helpless sheep, A pastoral connection is not its primary connotation in Jewish tradition. As a metaphor, the shepherd of sheep was a common figure of speech in Israel for a leader like Moses, or more often, of a Joshua-like military hero who could muster Israel's forces for war. When you read in the Old Testament, when they said that they're talking about shepherds, they're talking about their kings, they're talking about their military leaders... They're not just talking about somebody who's gonna you know, meet all of their personal needs. That's how we see this picture, but it's a wrong look. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of the most familiar stories of the Bible, immortalized in children's Bibles and storybooks as a pastoral miracle of Jesus surrounded by children in a happy family. It's the big happy meal. Everybody's sitting on the grass, Jesus shows up, you know, he's feeding them, you know, fish sandwiches. No, that's the picture we have in our mind. Because I think sometimes when we look at the Bible, you know what we do? We suck out all of the background, and we kind of have a vacuum, and we put this beautiful story in, and we go, isn't that nice? Jesus got compassion. The guys are hungry. He feeds them. Beautiful story. We, we don't have a sense of the context. Let me, let me fill it in with James Edwards here. And I agree with him, by the way. This was kind of shocking. I was reading this going, Wow. And this is, and once he started speaking about this, I went, this is totally right on. This is it. And he said, this picture is a misleading stereotype of what happens to happen in the Galilean hill country. However, several clues in the account suggest something much less bucolic and idyllic are happening. That just means that simple pastoral rural scene, okay? He's saying, no, 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 no. This is the making of a revolutionary uprising you got to get a picture of what's really going on here. These people are been helpless and harassed. Why? They've been suppressed for so long. They've been beaten. They've been taxed. They're angry. They've been taken advantage of. They've been abused. There's a, a nationalistic spirit. They're frustrated. There's, there's a sense of freedom. How many, you know, don't you know that human beings, there's a, we hate tyranny and we hate oppression and we want to be free. This is what you need to feel in the story. Then he goes on and says, rural Galilee was a stronghold of a zealot movement. Further clues in the account suggest populist and revolutionary sentiments within the crowd. Mention of the many people who were coming and going is unusual, even suspicious, and suggests a candlestine, which is a hidden movement of foot, especially if the many is to be understood as predominantly or more exclusively masculine as are the 5,000 men. How many know this was the feeding of 5,000 men? This is not just people, this is men. How many think, it's kind of unusual. If you've ever been to Israel, can you imagine 5,000 men there where, you know, we, where we go there to that little church where they have the loaves and bread, you know, the symbol there? Can you imagine 5,000 men there in a small community just kind of milling around? 5,000, how many think having 5,000 men milling around seems a little ominous? Are we getting a picture? This is not a normal picture. This is not a Sunday school picnic, folks. That's what I'm trying to shatter. This is not a bunch of happy families going, oh, we want to hear Jesus. This is not what's going on here. As a matter of fact, this unusual number of signs suggests that the wilderness commotion was aflame with messianic fervor and that a crowd hoped to sweep Jesus up as its guerrilla leader. These clues are confirmed in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000 where we're told that the people intended to come and make him king by force. Jesus, knowing that they were intending to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Listen, they were going to take Jesus and make him their leader, whether he wanted to be or not. And the people that had that in their minds were people that had a militaristic mindset, they wanted to fight. And they wanted Jesus to be the leader because they saw how powerful he was, how attractive he was, how he was ability to communicate. People were drawn to him. They felt that if they could get one person as the leader that could, you know, bring the people together, they could actually succeed in their plan. And they weren't letting Jesus have an option here. They were just going to do it, make him do that. And Jesus resisted the pressure. He slipped away. He said, "Listen, I'm not about this. I am not about that kind of a kingdom." Because you, can you imagine leading his nation into a war against Rome? Well, that's what happened 40 years later. You know what happened? Families were mutilated. Children were mutilated. Women were mutilated and abused. It was terrible. The bloodshed that happened afterwards. Jesus actually was weeping over Jerusalem over this. Why am I painting you this picture? Because what is Jesus doing? What's the significance of it? He's basically say, say, he said, "Look, I didn't come here to help you be free from this oppression, that you're this this economic or political oppression. I came here to make you free from the greater oppression. It's the oppression of sin." It's the oppression that transcends every culture. It's the oppression that transcends time. It's the problem that we're all dealing with. It's the issue how sin comes into our life and so dominates us that it brings us into bondage that we become addicted to it and we cannot be freed from it. Jesus said, I have come to liberate you from that. I am willing to give my life. One person giving his life for all of the people rather than leading a whole bunch of people into a massacre. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And the significance, and I love this, you know, well, look what he says. The disciples come, look, it's really late in the day. We've got to send these people away. They've got to go eat. You know what Jesus does? And he says to them, oh, I have something else in mind. You give them something to eat. How, how do you like the way Jesus operates? You know, we want to move, remove responsibility from ourselves, Right? You know, here's a problem. Here's a need. Somebody else take care of it. Jesus goes, no, no, no. You've got to take care of it. What is Jesus teaching us? He's teaching us about the kind of people he wants us to be. He wants us to be like himself. He wants us to take responsibility. He wants us to spend our lives for the sake of other people. He says, you go find them something to eat. He said, listen, if we had eight months' worth of wages, we'd have, you know, that's what it would cost to have the kind of, you know, Food that we would need to feed these 5,000 men plus I'm sure there was a few women and children there and and, you know Jesus said well why don't you go and find out what you have you know he says so how many loaves do you you know how many loaves do you have he asked go and see and when they found out they said five loaves and two fish and I've read so much stuff on this listen first of all it was a little boy's lunch this is not two big tunas you know (laughs) you know This is a little boy's lunch. Think of sardines on crackers. You're getting closer to what the picture was, okay? Number two, I read somebody this week, it was blowing my mind, he says, Jesus has such an amazing spirit that everybody shared their lunch and they could all be fed. Excuse me, read the text. You know, they didn't have food. They were hungry. Jesus comes along, he takes the little pieces of bread, it says he looked up in the heaven, he blessed it, broke it, and he gave it to the disciples who distributed it to the people. And afterwards they picked up 12 baskets full of food. The Bible says they ate and were satisfied. I love that. This wasn't a nibble on two bites and then, you know, pass it on to the next guy. This was like they ate and were satisfied. They ate enough to be full. And there was leftover. What is Jesus teaching us? He's teaching us these words. Listen to what these words are. He says, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, gave thanks, broke the loaves. Where else do we read these words? He took the bread, he broke the bread, he blessed it, he gave it to his disciples. Where else do you read those words? The Last Supper. This is a foreshadowing. What is Jesus teaching us at the Last Supper? He's gonna give his life in order to satisfy us. That's the picture. I'm gonna tell you right now there's only two lifestyles. There's only two choices and there's only one that satisfies. It's the life of Jesus. It's the life of surrender. So there's only, the choices. really, it comes down to two uh, types of people. Those who serve others at their expense or those who serve themselves at the expense of others. There's only two types of people. The compromised life or the surrendered life. And so I close with the question. Which life are you living? Which life are you living? And only you can determine that. Let's stand. I'm going to be real brief. We're going to pray right now. I'm going to say it this way. With every head bowed, you're saying, you know, Pastor, I, I'm not even going to have you say I'm, I'm living the compromise life, okay? Forget that. It means nothing to me. At this moment, it really doesn't mean a lot to God. What the real issue is today, how many here say, I want to live the surrendered life? I want to live the surrendered life. By the grace of God, I need to live the surrendered life. I long to live the surrendered life. I, I, I'm not interested in living that other life. I'm not interested in, you know, because at the end of the day, I'm gonna tell you, you're gonna be, you're gonna be so sad that you live the compromised life. You'll be so sad that you live the self-centered life. I can guarantee you, it's gonna end up poorly for you. It will, ultimately it will end up poorly for you. You know, I've I've lived long enough to see it play out over and over and over and over again. But I'll tell you one thing, if you live the surrendered life, if you say, Lord, I give you my life, you can take my life and use it any way you want to. I'm not gonna even complain about how you're gonna use it, I'm giving it to you. See, you know, you can talk about what does surrender really mean? You know, we can raise our hands to God, but this is not an empty thing. This is not like I give up and give you nothing. No, 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 no. What I'm asking you to do today is consecrate your lives to God. What does that mean, consecrate? You bring everything you are by lifting your hand to God saying, I give you everything. I give you everything, and I let you do what you want to do with my life. And I'll tell you what's going to happen. God's going to use your life. God can only use the surrendered life. That's the life you'll use. The rest of it, it's unhealthy. It's going to lead to a lot of unhealthy things. You go, man, P- Pastor, you made it so stark comparing Herod to Jesus. Folks, Herod represents the compromised life, that's all. I could go on, I could use all kinds of Bible people, and I could preach the sermon many different ways because this, this stark contrast is always there. And you go, well, yeah, but our lives are not this stark. I mean, we want to do the right thing. Don't you think Herod didn't, didn't, don't you think he knew what the right thing was and he still didn't do it? Don't you think he was trying in one way to do the right thing, but yet he wasn't quite doing the right thing and yet he thought it was good enough? But you know, I said to you, if you start making those wrong decisions, you can't control outcomes. Everybody heard that. The only way to be free is to surrender. That's it. It's a choice. That's the choice we have today. Say, Lord, help me. Help me to choose the surrendered life. And if that's you today, you just say, you know what? I'm going to close in prayer. Just raise your hands. That's you. I got my hands up. I want to live the surrendered life. I'm not interested in the other life. I want to live solely for Him. It's the, that's, and God is going to hear this cry today. He's going to hear our cry today. Just so say, Lord, I give my life to you. By your grace, I want to live the surrendered life. By your power, I want to live the surrendered life. I can't do it in my own strength. I know that. I need you to help me to live the surrendered life. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave today.